creating the garage. I'm Corey Cope. I'm Freddie Woff. We got number three for Noir Vember, our inaugural Noir Vember event. Yeah, it's kicked it off right too because I feel like we've made all the right choices, and I've, I, I've, I will stand by that next week as well. Yes, I, without even seeing it after decades, I can promise you that the last one for the month is super fun. Going to be the yeah, yeah. It's a great closer. But what we have today is the second and final OG noir yeah. for you. And that is also from 1950, just like Night in the City. And that's John Houston's adaptation of The Asphalt Jungle. Yeah, man. Good Lord. A left-handed <laughs> form of human endeavor. I love, I do that line. I just love that line. It There's is. so it's many great. great Look, does this movie, I mean, before we get into it, this movie has so many great quotable lines. There's so much great dialogue. I mean, it's so noir, tough guy, 1950s, perfect. Yeah. I love Houston, dude. I'm I'm a big John Houston fan. And I used to think that my favorite John Houston movie was The Maltese Falcon, but it's not. No. It's The Asphalt Jungle. (laughs) And I like lots of his stuff. I mean, Dude, uh, again, right. yeah, the misfits, all of it. But leading into this, I mean, he had some really big successes like around once we got a World War Two and then he started making movies again. Well, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah. Treasure of Sierra Madre and Key Largo. Boom, boom. All in the same year. He just came back with a vengeance and just started making movies. And those were the last two movies he did before he did Asphalt Jungle. And those movies are fucking classics. There's no other way of putting it. Oh, dude. Everything everything he's done was a classic. Because Key Largo is my favorite... Bogey movie? Bogart film. Absolutely. (laughs) It is. 100%. 100%. Dude, it's Edward G. Robinson, Bacall. I mean, The Maltese Falcon was where I would go. Because I think that's probably where I started with Houston. In in a roundabout way, obviously. Because, you know, when we probably... But you're probably the same when we started knowing what film was. We were probably 16 years old when Pritzi's Honor came out. So I had to work backwards, yeah. right? Right. And the first place you go is Maltese Falcon because everybody right. knows Bogart, blah, blah, blah. And everybody knows the Peter Lorre thing and the Looney Tunes cartoon. You know, we've, we've been steeped in, the, in that movie, right? But yeah. Key Largo. Key Largo. Which I always say is my best. Yeah. But after I watch this, I realize it's not. Because <laughs> yeah, it's this movie. It's, it's, it's tough because... It's one of those things we're talking about with, with certain bands, too. You're like, hey, what's your favorite blah, blah, blah album? And like, you start to talk, and you're like, but, but, and you start putting concessions on everything, and it's always followed by but when you come up with right. a new... That's how I feel about, about John Houston movies. I mean, I've always felt that way about them. It, as I dove more into... I mean, Pritzi, you mentioned, mentioned Pritzi's Honor. I was homesick, and we had a whole bunch of VHS rentals, and that's what it was. So I remember laying on the couch, sick as a dog from high school, because I, I rarely got sick. Well, the ASB office thought I was <laughs> sick a lot, but when I was actually sick, I would stay home and watch that movie and just loved it. And then when I go back and watched other movies prior to that, then you start seeing the same performers that he's reusing. Yeah, man. And that's one of the things that he did very early on in his career, more so because obviously when he got older, he was, his features were far and few and far between. They were more spread out than they were obviously in the time period that we're talking about right now. Right. I mean, one of the things, I mean, for me, like one of the things when you see a John Houston movie, they're always well cast and they're always perfectly cast. Like 
you, you can't watch a John Houston movie and think, you know, who would have been better than Sterling Hayden? <laughs> never. Fucking nobody. Nobody would have been better than Sterling Hayden in this movie. No one. We, we could never alt cast this movie no. and make it better. Fuck never. no, dude. Who, who would have been better than James Whitmore as Gus? Uh, nobody. <laughs> who would have been better as Cobby? Nobody. <laughs> right. And then tying in Whitmore with... What he does later on, what we what we talked about off mic, about him essentially being the same guy in, in Shawshank. Yeah, right? Like, dude, like you're yeah. telling me that like uh, the, the Darabont, when he cast Shawshank, didn't say, hey, man, you know who we want? We, we got to cast James Whitmore. Yeah, it, you know, no, it's Gus from the Asphalt Jungle. Right. Gus is a motherfucker, dude. dude. Gus is chill, but Gus will fuck you up, man. Gus is chill <laughs> as fuck till he's not, right? Yep. yep. And just the introduction to everybody in this movie, one of the things about this movie, right, like it starts off and we're in this nameless Midwestern city, you know, and, we, and we've got those long shots of, the, of that patrol car and, and Sterling Hayden walking. You have really no idea where he's at. Like, right. you know, you're somewhere in the middle of the United States because of the cop car. But when you cut to Hayden walking, I mean, dude, you might be in post-war Europe. I mean, I mean, honestly, yeah. right? Like, right. it definitely looks like that whole neo-realism sort of uh, post-World War II, you know, Italian vibe is going on there. And it, it, the way it cuts together and, and as we meet these characters, they're as hard as this fucking place they live, right? Like you said, right. <laughs> when we were talking before, like every place and everything in this movie is fucked up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's no safe haven. Like... The cops are hard. The criminals are hard. The women are hard. I mean, it's just a hard fucking place. Right. Hence the asphalt jungle. <laughs> right. Even the rich people live in a shithole. Right. Like it's the town. It's like, in, it, as I, again, I said off mic, it's like when you see Tim Burton's Batman, that his version of Gotham City is shit everywhere. And the only way to escape the shit is to go higher up. But you're still, when you come down to street level, you're still in the shit. That's what this whole place feels like. And, and I think it's interesting that the observation you made about comparing the, the how everything looked to like a worn, torn World War II Europe. It just, it, it looks like that. Obviously, the, the location, Scott, was very intentional with what they chose. And But like you said, when you see Sterling Hayden's Dix Hanley walking through, and we, we don't even know who the guy is yet. No. And I loved how casual he was just kind of hiding behind the pillar. <laughs> right. But look, I mean, what's crazy, right? Is you're like looking at Dix walking and we don't, we don't know he's Dick's hand. We don't know this yet. We don't know who he is yet. Yeah. But as we've seen, I mean, dude, he is a, a man of large stature. Like, yeah, he's, right. He's, like, he's, and they established <laughs> that right in the beginning. Right. He's as tall and as worn as the landscape he's walking through. Right. Cause they're shooting him in these long, wide shots and, you know, every, everything's tall. And, and then he's, he's kind of like the biggest man in the valley kind of thing, right? Like you're just looking right. at him and he's walking and, and he's not unlike these buildings that are sort of decaying, you know, and, and even the way he's walking, we're like, you know, he, he seems like the world is worn on him. You know, you're not sure, but you know, this dude's trouble and right. wherever we're going, we do want to go with him, but it, we know it's not going to probably end up well for any of us. Right. He's one of those guys like when, you know, if you're into older films, you probably maybe if you weren't, didn't, had never seen him in Asphalt Jungle before, you may more well versed with for Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. Yeah. Th that's probably for me, even though this movie's considerably older than that one, not considerably, but it's a little bit older. Yeah, it's six years older. The Killing's like six years after this. Yeah. 
you discover that, but you discover that movie because if you're you're finding out when you see Reservoir Dogs, like oh, this is where Quentin got his inspiration came from for that heist movie. So like, yeah. so I paid attention to it because of that. But even in that too, he carries a certain stature. The Asphalt Jungle to me is the it's the setup for all of those movies, everything that right. came after it, like the Killing, right. none of all those movies, Rafifi, which is considered like one of the greatest heist movies. They all stem from this movie. Right. The way that this movie is shot, the way the capers portrayed, the way the right. characters are all set up. What's great about the characters is they're all so different from one another. And I don't know, man, there's just something about the the faces and the people that, again, goes back to Houston, always knowing who we wanted and not, like I said, you couldn't recast right. this movie. No. My introduction to Sterling Hayden is in Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. That, that was the first thing I knew him from. So I discovered the killing and asphalt and all those afterwards. My dad was a big, you know, fan of Dr. Strangelove. And so, you know, I always knew he was Jack the Ripper. Right. Sterling Hayden is a trip, dude. I don't know if you have the Criterion disc, but if you don't, there's a documentary. On, on Strangelove? No, it's on the Asphalt Jungle Blu-ray. But it's like a 40-minute documentary. And a lot of it is Hayden sitting in his boat talking about himself. But there's a lot of parallels between Dix and Sterling Hayden, just where they were in life at the time when they made this movie. You know, I mean, again, like we talked about Dassin early on in our first episode, like the whole red scare and, you know, having to get out of it. Well, Sterling Hayden didn't, and, and he had to name names, dude. I mean, and, you know, and he lived with quite a bit of regret. And at this time, when he made this movie, he was already wanted to leave Hollywood. He always he already hated Hollywood. He was, you know, he wanted to go sail the world. Casting him as Dix, what we know and what we learn about Dix, and it's just really weird. Like it's it's like the perfect casting. It's like it's almost like Sterling Hayden is just being Sterling Hayden, but we want to watch that Sterling Hayden, like because we don't know exactly when. Like he has this weird thing about him, like you don't know where he's going to go. He he's like a ticking time bomb, right? Like. You see that, but you also, as the story unfolds, because they they set it up right early on when they're talking about you know we need a hooligan and this and that and all that hooligan talk and you know they're usually junkies or whatever and you know and, and we don't know what kind of guy Dix is, but Dix turns out like to be the most honorable. Him and Doc, right? Like they're the two most honorable. Well, and guys, they're all honorable to an extent, right? And then the way Doc sets it all up and just pulls him in because he says, "Hey, you know, Dix." I think I can talk to you. And, and he goes, yeah, 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 you can talk to me. Obviously, just go, you know, I'm going to let you in on a secret. I love how they do that, by the way, because from doing the reading that I was uh, doing on the on the, the movie, how Houston and his adaptation was very true and most of the dialogue is lifted directly from the novel. You're not spelling it out either. Again, every, people that are readers, obviously, they, they understand the extra detail that goes into, into a, a novel. And he kept that dialogue because usually dialogue, when you make that, that transition and adaptation to f screen, you're cutting dialogue. You're not leaving it as is or you're spelling it out more. So when Doc pulls him in and says, hey, I think I can talk to you. Not like, a, hey, I got a secret to tell you and, and right. a whole bunch, a bunch of other crap. It's very like, you don't have to pay attention as much as you do in other movies, but then they're just, it, just take note of the relationship these characters have. Yeah, man. Everybody has their own angle on this. Like, I, I love all the characters in this movie. Like, for down from the, you know, the, the, the dirty cop, you know, who we see him at the beginning in the lineup, right? Trying to push that uh, eyewitness right. <laughs> to ID dicks. But is he really? 
I mean, I guess he is, but you know, and then we see him reprimanded by the commissioner who, who is like a fucking, it's funny because it's like, if you look at this in the historical context, right? Like, you know, and knowing what we know now about the whole McCarthy, you know, right. You could sort of see a lot of that, like the criminals are are the artists, like the actors and the writer, right. you know, and and uh, the commissioner is Ronald Reagan and uh, right. the rest of the, you know, the HUAC cats. It's it's so funny, man, because I'm sure at the time, but not watching it now, it's like so, you're like, you're like holy shit, right? This was some crazy shit. Dude, in the asphalt jungle, cops are dicks. I don't mean handily. There's not even a good one in the bunch, not even no. the commissioner who is, right. you know, he's, a, he's looking to eradicate crime, but he's a piece of shit too. But then again, there's varying degrees of like, you know, the criminals, cause they're not all, you know, what they say they are, what, you know, like Cal Hearn, you know, uncle Lon, Alonzo, he's a piece of shit, dude. Right. Like, but doc knows that, you know, what I love about it is there's not any surprise, right? Like when we find out that they've been fucked over, oh, I don't have the money. It's, there's, there's not a big scene where there's no comfort. They don't scream at one another and it doesn't turn into that, like what it would turn into now. You know, it's just kind of like this, well, what were you thinking doing this? Dude, I love Brad Dexter, dude. As Lon's yeah. hitman or his uh, yeah. sidekick as Garrett. Yeah. <laughs> that guy, dude, when he showed up, I was like, oh, well, yeah. That I, I know when I see him... <laughs> I know not to trust that guy, right? Like right. He, that, he's just one of those actors that you see and you're like, oh, yeah. cause he's always good, but you know, he's a dickhead. He's, yeah, yeah. he's going to be he's that the, guy. Yeah. He's the Christo of the movie. He's yeah. like, hundred <laughs> percent. What I love about that reveal when you get there and Emmerich doesn't have the money and now we haven't been led to believe that he doesn't have the money. We just knew that he right. was going to, we knew that he need, he was in search of some money. Right. Like when he sent him, his boy out to go pick up all, all of his debts. but. You don't know that that it, things are so bad for him that he doesn't have the money to pay these guys for the for the fencing of the jewels that they're stealing. But when you see that moment, have that moment, you just think back to that Doc and Dick's moment where he's I I I don't trust these fuckers, right? You know, and like he knew from the beginning. So when you get to that point where Doc's like, "Hey, what a surprise! You don't have the money," because <laughs> you can tell by the tone, like he's. Thing about Doc is he's always ten steps ahead. Yeah, but that so when he gets out of jail at the beginning of the movie and he says, "Hey, I got this caper. I want to. I want to pull this off. I need fifty k in capital to make it work. I have to check, you know, dot my eyes and cross my t's, kind of thing." But I think you should all be good to go because I planned this before I went to jail. He's very calculating, and, I was, and again, being just somebody that just came out of. Get out of prison after what? How long did he say he was? In seven, there? Years seven years stretch. Yeah, seven hey, years. Look at, mm-hmm. look at that. Just like very similar. Just like Hoskins. Yeah, Hoskins had a seven years ten. Yeah, ten. man. So look at that. What just is like it George. Seven? Lucky number seven. <laughs> sure, sure. When you have that moment of realization that we do anyway, that doesn't have the money, we know one hundred percent what a piece of shit. We already know he's a piece of shit. He's got Marilyn Monroe calling him uncle. Well, well, right. He's got, you know, he's got his side piece, his, you know, sick wife who's bedridden. I mean, he's got dude, that scene with her and him where they're playing, where she's yeah. basically begging him to play the casino, you know, with the, you know, and you know what a piece of garbage he is. It's, yeah. you, you just know, again, all the right casting. Right. And then calling him out for being, having a terrible poker face. I'm like, I mean, we knew he's a piece of shit, but I didn't know he didn't have any money. <laughs> I just thought he was going to screw him over and not have enough. Right. Like, you know, or whatever. But I, I didn't think he was shy any money. And I thought the money that he was trying to get his guy to, to track down was just so here's, here's my get the fuck out of town money. Who knows? 
Yeah. I mean, again, like all of these pieces, like we talked about Gus, right? Gus is like this little fucking, you know, he's, he's kind of like Pesci's character in, in uh, Goodfellas. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, every time I watch this movie, I think back, you know, and I'm thinking, well, you know, yeah, you know, Pesci was a fan of this movie. And Scorsese, obviously, is. because, you know, Tommy is, uh, you know, it, I mean, it's, you know, when he flips out on the fucking, you know, he's, he's chill. He's like, hey, yeah, you're just passing through, but not fast enough. And he grabs that truck driver and fucking throws him out. If you ever see you fucking run over a cat, I'll kick your fucking teeth in. You know, it's like, holy shit, dude. He went from zero to 60. And then he sits down next to Dix and he's like, okay, go ahead, man. Rough me up, whatever. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's and a- Dix is just like, mm-hmm. I don't know, man. You're, you're a little guy, but I might have my hands full with you, Gus. When he, when he chases him out and he kind of like... If you, what did he say? If you were like six inches tall, whatever the fucking crack he was about being short. And right. he kind of like does that little step out and then he kind of runs and jumps into his truck. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, dude. I'm like, you don't want to mess with the guy like that. No, dude. A, he's, he's a pit bull. I don't let him be. <laughs> yeah. Look at that little guy. He is not someone you want to fuck with. No. hundred yeah, percent. One of my favorite performances in this movie is Mark Lawrence is Cobby, the bookie. Yeah. You, you know, you're just, dude, he, how, I mean, what's his line? Money makes me sweat. <laughs> yeah. Because what, what are you sweating so much for, Cobby? <laughs> yeah, right? And you look at Cobby, dude, and Cobby's always sweaty. Like, you know, he's a guy I would never trust. Like, he's just, you look at that dude and you're like, no, I don't trust you. Don't bone me, Cobby. You bone me, Cobby. But their interaction with each other, all of them. And I love the guy. Uh, dude, what's crazy, right? Gene Hagen as Doll took me a minute to remember who she was and i was like holy shit she's in singing in the rain yeah which again nothing like her character in singing in the rain you know everybody again it's the nature of these noir movies and it's kind of why we picked these movies right picking them when we picked them i don't know that i realized how much each one had in common to it until we're watching each one of them and how yeah. much in common they do have with each other you know because i feel like one of the things that don't get right a lot now, there's not a character in here I don't like. Even, you know, I mean, you're not supposed to like the cops and they're not really what the movie's about. It's about the criminals. Right. And the, and again, if you look at it as like, the criminals are like the artists of the time, right? So these are like your fucking painters and your musicians and your, it's your jet, you know, the, you know, of course, being a more artistically driven people like we are of course we're gonna fucking you know yes we love all these people right because we kind of get them having to make your way and to you know it's it's just a god this movie's so fucking good when you look at the other movies that are like it not from the time but more current more into the neo-noirs heck, heck even something you would even refer to as a neo-noir movie there is a romanticized take on the criminal in these movies and to a certain point of look oh they're just like us they they have shit never goes right for them either but the cops are always always the bad guys they're always the bad guys i don't mean dirty cops i just mean cops period and that's why like when you see reservoir dogs i'm using as an example because there's the comparisons are still there of the romanticizing of of a criminal what's the first thing we see in reservoir dogs who we eventually find out as a cop, but there he is with a bolt in his gut. Yep. He's a, I mean, we're already seeing a cop dying right in the beginning of the movie. The cops in this are that are the type of, I, you don't want them to get caught. You don't want anybody no. to get caught. Nope. You want Emmerich to get like slighted. Yeah. Because Doc is so methodical and thinks so far ahead. I truly didn't think he even had the jewels with him when they went to 
Yeah. With Amrix. Right. And I, to me, like that seemed like something that, that would, uh, that, that he would have done and not brought them. But to what, to what you're saying earlier with the cast, it's, it's, and again, it's not, there's not a lot of people. Well, sorry. There's more people in this that we see like than we did with Mona Lisa, but more on par with uh, Night in the City. But there's even more people in there, but you never get lost on who's who. No. It's not that intentional thing with Mona Lisa where you had three different performers that were supposed to kind of lend a little, little bit of confusion to you because they all look alike. And that was just that thing that where Hoskins was trying to get through of being estranged from his daughter and having to follow these other people around track down this girl that looks just like his daughter. It's not like that where everybody in this has a very, that's the thing too, but the time, like almost all these actors always look the same as far as the slicked hair or the way they dressed. But I never get the sense in this movie that I don't know who's who. I don't go like, if I've seen a character already in the screen before, I don't go, oh, who the fuck's that guy now? I don't ever feel lost about it. The, the introduction to characters is not expositional. Like with Marilyn Monroe's character, Angela, you don't really see her. I'm like, well, who is she? I'm like, well, you figure that he's the side because you don't see the wife until later. Right. So you figure he's just like, oh, he's the rich guy with the with the hot young girlfriend. No. But she and then she keeps referring to him as uncle and you're kind of like, oh, maybe it's his niece. And then she kisses him on the mouth. You're like, okay, oh, maybe not. That's how it is in this family. <laughs> no. But no, it's like I, it's the it's the introduction of character, and it's not expositional. It's like you 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 get introduced to her, you don't know who she is, and then oh, I know who she is, and then something else happens. Like oh, now I know who you are. It's such smart filmmaking, and for a movie that is so close to its adaptation of a novel, I'm surprised it's as efficient as it is. On top of it, you know. Yeah, well, it's funny, man, because this movie is so influential to everything that came after it, right? Like, right. I mean, they've they remade this movie three times. Like, once as a western, The Badlanders in '58. Like, there's a British version with George Sanders uh, called Cairo. There's even a black exploitation version called Cool Breeze <laughs> from '72, and and they're all pretty good. None of them are as good as this. This is one of those lightning in the bottle kind of things. And also, you know, none of those filmmakers who directed those are, were anywhere close to, you know, John Huston, right? Like we're talking about of one of the best directors ever. What, one of the things I want to talk about this movie is the way it's lit. This movie yeah. is beautiful. And what really blows my mind is I didn't realize it until I, I, I looked him up. But he shot The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Singing in the Rain. Yeah. Another movie called The Garden of Allah, I think. Uh, and a bunch of other stuff, but to be the guy who shot the wizard of Oz to be the same guy who shot this movie, man. I mean, is that insane? We talked about during night in the city, how much they fit in a frame, but the way Harold Ross and dude, what he does in this is just stud. Like you said, when we're watching the opening, right. And you're seeing the desolate town and like, you don't look in the way it does, but again, he fits so much in that small frame, in that one three three frame, it's to, to the point to the lighting. The only time you see any daytime in this fucking movie is that in the beginning. Yeah, and that's like the that's the early morning. That's that's the sun coming up, that's the right. sunrise. And then after that, it's like it's, you're it's all, outside. You're inside. inside. There's a lot. This is inside. Yeah, or it's all dark outside. Right. This. I mean, this, this came out in 1950, just like in Night in the City, and they're both quote unquote American movies. 
But this feels like an American movie while Night in the City feels like an American movie done with the British way of doing things. It's not just because of where we're shot, but like we talked about in that episode, it still doesn't feel like an American movie, especially with the ending. That's not an American ending, even though the American version has the more traditional British ending, which is, again, really funny. But the way this one ends... Dude, to me, feels more like that. Yeah, well, I mean, again, the last frame of this movie is one of the most haunting, heartbreaking like, images ever captured on film, dude. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to give it away for people who haven't seen it, but them driving, you know, dicks. And again, you think that those two guys are going to get away and you're rooting so hard for fucking Doc and for dicks. To get out. I mean, the, the, obviously everybody else has been rounded up and, you know, again, it's spoiler alert, but whatever. If you haven't seen the movie by now, that's your fault. <laughs> Don't listen. Turn it off right now. <laughs> but I'm saying like, like we, we're seeing everybody else get, you know, Cobby fucking folds, obviously, you know, Cobby's been, we, we, we always knew Cobby was the guy who was going to cave, right? Like everybody, you know, if you're, if you're doing this, beware of bookies, especially guys who say money makes them sweat. Yeah, Cobby, dude. Cobby's totally the lawyer from Jurassic Park. Correct. <laughs> Cobby's that guy. You know, we, we all see Cobby. We, we know where Cobby's coming from and you see it a mile away and Gus goes to jail. The safecracker, I forget his name. He gets shot in the escape by accident and doesn't make it. Alonzo ends up, Uncle Lon ends up fucking eating his gun and, you know, it's all falling off like one by one. Right. But you're really, really invested in Doc and Dix, and you're hoping they both get away. And, you know, what's the, there's the real famous quote. Doc says it at one point. And then at the end, you realize, man, that truer words were never spoken. I got to look up the quote real quick. It's uh, one way or another, we all work for our vice. And at the end of the day, goddamn, if they don't. Right. Those fucking nickels, they stayed, he th stayed three minutes too long <laughs> in that diner. Right. It was the one time that he didn't think, wasn't thinking three steps ahead like he usually is. And he's too, he's too in the moment and it, and it catches him off guard. And he, next thing you know, he's in custody. Well, they're setting it up perfectly the whole time, dude. He's always talking about the women down in Mexico. They're brilliant. You know, there's the him, that scene of him looking at, you know, looking lovingly after he, when he first shows up, he's looking at the calendar and, the, you know, it, it's all set up there, but we kind of forget about it because he's so smart. He's so calculated. He's always one jump ahead. But again, at the end, his vice is women. It always has been. And that's what brings him down. And it's just like, fuck man, that, that bit, as soon as he goes for the nickels, I'm like, God damn it. He's going to get popped dude. Yeah. And then I, then I couldn't remember. I hadn't seen it in so long. I'm like, did the cabbie, did somebody call? Nope. Nobody called. It was no, him. The and the cabbie was like, like we got to go. I mean, cabbie was like, cabbie was like, like everybody else in this movie, I'm selfish and I want my fucking money. I want my 50 bucks. I'll <laughs> drive you to the North pole for $50. <laughs> Again, it's funny. It's very similar to the end of, Night in the City, you really sort of feel for Doll, right? Right. It ends kind of the same for her as it does for, uh, you know, Gene Tierney in Night in the City. Like, right. Fabian was a piece of shit, but, you know, she loved him. Dix is a hard fucking person to love, but, like, dude, all she wanted to be was with Dix. She didn't give a shit. And she said it. Yeah. And then just like with Doc, Dix has some for you know foreshadowing. He's like, now nah, man, yes. it's like you want to get out of town with me. He's like, no, fuck no, I'm going back to the farm. Yeah, he tells you the know? story, right? He tells the story early on when right. when when we first meet Doll, right? And they're having coffee. My favorite line from him is like, "Well, quit talking about it and make it." <laughs> when <Right>. she <laughs> offers him coffee for the second time, 
There's and, so he's got another great line, dude. He says the same thing to to Kabi when he's like, "Stop crying and give me some whiskey." <laughs> he's he's trying like he's trying to be like the he's this criminal that's been around for a long time. He's done some things. He's been in and out of the of the joint. He's like, you know, that, dude. That's why he's ready to go home. That's why he yeah. wants to go back to the farm. He's done with the bullshit. Give me a big score, and I'm going to go call it a day. I'm going to go home and wash the stench of the city off in the creek. Yeah. That's what yeah. he's going to do back in yeah. Kentucky. You know, he does, he gets there, but what did Doc tell him? Sometimes home's not what you think it is. I've done it many times. You know, yeah. it, again, truer words never spoken. And then, you know, but but that's the great thing about these movies, right? Is like you're, you're invested in these people. At the end of the day. You know, no, we're not going to have a sunny fucking ending. People aren't going to, you know, nobody's driving off to fucking, you know, nobody's driving off like the, you know, the end of Blade Runner down the coast <laughs> with Sean Young in the passenger seat. You know, hey, we're robots, but who gives a fuck? You know, that that shit didn't happen, you know, in a, in a real sort of noir movie. You know, it's funny, man, as I was reading, Louis B. Mayer, was he the producer? Yeah, he think he produced this. Hated these kind of movies, right? Like he was like, why are we making this fucking trash? You know, he... He did not like noir and he did not like this movie, <laughs> which is so weird because, right. but I guess again, it's not because he's in the business of making money. And I, maybe this movie, you know, going up against whatever big 1950s musical probably didn't clear the cash, but we're still talking about the asphalt jungle and not, a, not whatever that 1950s <laughs> musical was at the moment. So this is one of those movies. Like, I feel like people are going to listen to this episode and be like, what the fuck were you guys talking about? Do you know what this movie was really? But yeah, yeah, yeah. I get all that, but I'm not. I'm here to talk about surface. <laughs> the, yeah, man. I'm not here to fucking t- give you a history lesson. Every you know, there's fuck. Like I said, there's people way smarter than me can do that. What I love about this movie and just the, you know, just the whole that whole genre of filmmaking is you're, we're seeing the underbelly and we're seeing, but we're seeing that you know everything's not as black and white as one would have you. You know, as you're taught when you're a child. Cops are good, robbers are bad. <laughs> I mean, right. Life's not that simple. And and the thing about these stories is it isn't everything is complicated and it's not simple. And sometimes it's not just like, well, if you just made a better decision, it's it's more than that, right? Like sometimes you're just not given the opportunity, or it it's not just one step that took you here. It's it's the journey of life before you got there. And the thing about this movie is everybody sort of wears you you, you know. I don't feel like there's anybody like I feel like I look at each one of these guys and I know. You know, you know their story and you know what they're bringing to the table. And, that, and that's one of the things somebody had said that, you know, the thing was, is they were, they're all New York actors, right? All these guys were cast out of New York. So they all knew each other before. Right. And they were all trying to one up each other <laughs> and they were all, but by the same, at the same time, all trying to support one another within the structure of the film. And it really shows, I mean, like literally everybody's doing the, you know, there's not one person doing heavy lifting in this. Everybody's doing the heavy lifting in every scene with each other a balance load if you will yeah information i've seen is has how true houston and uh, ben maddow were to the adaptation of the the burnett novel this is again the writer on the mccarthy era kind of stuff part of the mpaa well as we know it these days there was when it, what the hell was it called back then i forget but they started a new department called the production code administration in the mid-30s and the weird thing was, is that scripts were being viewed and, and reviewed before they were shooting them. Yeah. And with this movie, they did that. And they had a problem with Emmerich's character that he cheated justice by killing himself. Right. 
And I'm thinking, fuck, are you, is that what you're worried about? Yeah, I mean, totally, right? So much to the point that Houston shot an alternate where Emmerich finishes the suicide note. That I mean, that's it. I mean, if, I, I don't know why, but I, I guess in a lot of ways he was, the whole point of him ripping, writing the note and ripping it up is like going, you know what? Well, let me ask you a question because the way it's written and the way it's filmed is we see him tear the note up and then we hear, Emmerich. Yeah. Did he reach for the gun and put the gun and shoot himself? Or did he reach for the gun and the cop shot him? You don't know. That's why I think it's so great. But even the reviews that I've seen for people are leaning more that he was, it was a suicide thing. Sure. He saw the, well, he's writing the note. Right. The cop says what he says, mostly because I, I don't know, does he, I mean, I, I have to, th- or maybe it was a, oh. um, it's suicide by drawing on a cop kind of thing. Suicide by cop is what I was getting at, right? Like he opens the drawer, yeah. he looks at the top of the drawer, you don't see that there's no gun there. He reaches in, then we hear the cop, because the cop's standing there watching him write the note. Right. I mean, I just think that the way it's done is, is, is very clever. Like, look, I'm going to say, in my opinion, he shot himself, but- there could be an argument made for he reached for the gun and one of those overzealous cops just fucking plugged him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, there's no way about it. If, if somebody's reaching for a gun, they're going to spin on you, whatever they're going to do with the gun. Those cops in that movie. <laughs> no. Would have, you know, they had to put him down like a fucking, you know, like a rabid dog if they had to. Right. Uh, as an example, look at the departed. Yeah. Like when they're in the elevator and there's something that happens there. I'm like, oh shit, he's dirty too. It was like when you, you, you don't know there's, this, there's a certain person that kind of like, next thing you know, he's dirty also. This could have been a cop that we've seen numerous scenes. I'm like, oh shit. He's just like homeboy too. He's on the take also. Yeah. And, and they put him out of his misery because he probably did some dealings with them. Yeah. It's like, it's not as obvious. And actually I love, it's kind of like, it reminds me of, you know, studios or in this case, the MPAA at the time getting in the way of something and they're like going, Oh, you want me to change that? Sure. I'll go ahead and change that. Like Fincher did with fight club. (laughs) Right. And they give him the, a line far worse than the one that was agitating the studio head. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Houston is such a deliberate filmmaker. He never seemed to be somebody that would tolerate bullshit from somebody else. Tell him how to make a movie so that I'm leaning more towards what you're saying. I'm suggesting that, he left it ambiguous enough to make somebody else happy, but he knows and we know yeah. what really happens. Right, know? exactly. I mean, you know, and that's one of the things about noir that's, you know, it's always so much fun. It's like, what the other thing about noir, I, I don't know, maybe it's just, you know, it's me, it's my character flaw. You know, I just enjoy these type of characters, <laughs> these type right. of movies. I, I was never a kid who rooted for the fucking good guy all the time. I just didn't, but I don't know why. You know, they're always saying, you know, don't romanticize the, you know, criminals and blah, 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 blah. But I don't even think it's that. I think it's just, you know, even in literature, I feel like, again, there's two sides to every story. And, you know, I just sort of grew up watching these type movies and and realizing that maybe the bad guys are a little more interesting than the good guys at the end of the day. I don't know, whatever it is, whatever these flawed, they're all flawed and whatever is flawing them is what makes them interesting and real to me as opposed right. to like, you know, Tom Mix cowboy movies, you know, or with a guy riding in with a 10 gallon white hat or, you know, whatever. Because yeah. life's not like that, you know, and if you learn that early enough, life's less painful. <laughs> right. And we talked about that during Mona Lisa. Yeah. 
unlike the other three movies and the one we still have coming is one of those three, Mona Lisa is less about the crime that's going on around and more about the couple and the relationship between those two. All of these movies that we've, well, the two that we've covered so far, even though they're very, they're very specific to the crime, the, the crime world, if you will, Night in the City was very much is, is, is more like Mona Lisa than than Mona Lisa is with the other two movies, just because there is a relationship thing. It's about it's about a father and, and his two sons, and more about the father and his estranged son. This one is just about a man. To me, at the at its core, it's Sterling wanting to go home. Yeah. I'm a tired man. I've done this shit too long. I just want to go home. Let's do this last big thing so I can call it a day. Well, I'm sure if we want if we wanted to get real philosophical, we could just say they're all in purgatory at the moment. Yep. Everybody's on their, you know, it's a way station and they're all on their way to wherever. We have to verbalize our our penance for what we've done yeah. and then we and then we get freed. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, they're all dead. And uh, we're, we're following them. You know, we don't know how they all ended up in this place together, but, you know, here they are. And are they going to make, they're going to they make the same mistakes or are they going to, uh, whatever, whatever it is. I don't, any way you want to spin it. I fucking love this movie. <laughs> yeah. And you could say that about the cops too. You can sit there and yes, say the cops correct. and they're never going anywhere because they're they can, because they're so right. They're righteous in their minds that they don't. Correct. They don't realize that Dude, why they're there. The scene with the commissioner there was with the radios and shit when he's giving his speech to all the reporters. Dude. What a fuck, dude. Like, Jesus Christ. Right. Why doesn't he just fucking come out and start calling everybody commies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, here I am listening to you. Here I am listening to you. Like, as he keeps turning off switches and shit. Oh yeah, man. I mean, but again, it's all super effective. A couple fun things I wanted to say about this is, so the girl dancing, right? She's uncredited. Do you know who she is? No, she was the real life model for all of the Disney, uh, like in Sleeping Beauty. Oh, right. Right. She was their animation model. Correct. She's the right. animation model. Yeah. Right. Uh, I got to forget her name off the top of my head, but she's uncredited. But this is like one of the first times she's on camera and she's so great, dude. And she's so great. And when you're watching her move and then when you, you're like, oh, you can totally see it. Right. Like you see. She is that model. Like when you, if you, because I went, they, there's a, on the, on the disc, on the Criterion disc, it literally, they, they show her and then they'll show some of the bits from the, from the Disney bits. And then it cuts back to her dancing and you're like, oh, holy yeah, shit. Yeah. I saw that recently. It was making its rounds on socials. Yeah. 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 I so. think somebody, somebody was taking some time to clip from Asphalt Jungle because like I mentioned that Marilyn Monroe thing earlier yeah. about the banana head thing. So yeah. Oh, uh, Helene Stanley. Helene Stanley. There you go. I, yeah. I was going to say yeah. Helen, but I knew that wasn't right. Helene. Yeah. Helene Stanley. Yeah. She's great. And another, uh, just a random thought I had when I was watching this, I was, I was watching this and I couldn't help but think that Michael Madsen literally stole Dude. everything from Reservoir Dogs from dicks. <laughs> Seriously? I mean, maybe, maybe there, maybe everybody knows that and it's common knowledge, but it just hit me in the face yesterday when I was watching it. I was like, Jesus Christ, dude, he stole everything from Dick's handling. When you were talking about the fact that Sterling, I mean, Sterling's not a small dude. He's six, five. Yeah. He's a big man. He was a big dude, but Houston really made sure you knew that. Of course. His His camera shots were always, they weren't even at standard height. They always pulled down the show him because he wasn't a menacing dude he wasn't you know like we said every once in a while he kind of like sparked something dialogue wise that he's kind of a like barks out an order but he's very unassuming because he like like we said before he's a tired 
criminal. I'm done with the bullshit. I'm not, you know, I've gotten enough fights. You know, I've already flown off the handle enough times. I need to be this chill guy and get out of here. So, so for those quiet moments, Houston still shoots him from underneath to give him that presence. And it's, I mean, it does a couple of things. It shows how big, how much bigger he is, but also helps out some of the fact that the other guys aren't exactly tall either. Well, so. I mean, Whitmore is, not, you know, Gus is Gus is probably five eight. I would imagine, right. if not and, shorter than that. Right, and our introduction to him is super wide, so you see how short yeah. he is. And of course, the, that trucker makes a crack about how, how he's not a tall guy. Yep. It's well established that these guys come from all walks of life and some are fly off the handles. Like you said, some could be like a Joe Pesci from like Tommy and Goodfellas, or yeah. you could be somebody that's more like uh, Polly. <laughs> you know, it's like, correct. Look, and I'm old and I can't pull up your bullshit. So, and that's basically Sterling is in this. Also, let me just, for the record, it's Dick's Handley. I know I keep saying Hanlon because I keep thinking of Ace Hanlon from Quick and the Dead. Like, I don't know why Hanlon, but it's Dick's Handley. I just want, yeah. so, you know, nobody gets, before you guys start writing me hate mail, I know the difference. And it's Handley. I get it. A couple other fun things. Sam Jaffe plays Doc. Dude, he played Gunga Din in Gunga Din with uh, Cary Grant and Douglas Fairbanks, which is crazy to me. I was like, holy shit. And then Mark Lawrence, who plays Cobby, you know how I love these Charlie Chan movies. Mark Lawrence is in like four different Charlie Chan movies, <laughs> always kind of playing a shitbag. He's always the bad guy or, or you know, somebody. Because I was like, why does he, why again, man, I keep, I, he looks so familiar to me. And I haven't watched Asphalt Jungle in probably 15 years. And then I was like, I, I'm like, yes, of course. He's he's in Charlie Chan in the Wax Museum, Charlie Chan in Honolulu, Charlie Chan at Treasure Island, and then one more. <laughs> and he's always playing kind of the same role, but not the same character, but he's always playing that guy. Right. He's, he's got the face to play either a criminal or like that sort of you know, the weak criminal. Like he's a, he was a fun, he was a great actor, Mark Lawrence, but he, he's in a lot of fun stuff. Anthony Caruso was the other, uh, was the safe cracker. I couldn't remember his name really. He's great oh, too. Right. Yeah. The scene, you know, where, where, uh, where Dix calls him up late at night asking to borrow money. Oh yeah. And his wife's in the other room with a baby and, you know, everybody in this movie, man, is, is, is super fun. I, I, Anthony Caruso, I think he was, uh, I knew him mostly from Star Trek. I seen him, he was in an episode of Star Trek. Um, but he was, he was in a lot of television shows that I watched when I was a kid, Get Smart, Time Tunnel. I recognized him mostly from that. Marilyn Monroe, this was kind of her first big thing right before she became Marilyn. Everybody's familiar to you. I think is another thing that really sort of helps this movie. Like when you, you, you've seen these people and everybody kind of seems real and familiar to you. Like there's a familiarity, which kind of makes the movie. Let me ask you a question. So when she calls the cop a big banana head, <laughs> yeah, what is the history between those two? Like, is, is there some sort of, didn't, didn't, didn't her, couldn't I just talk to you? Yeah, no, there's definitely an implication uh, the, that they knew each other. Like, right, like I thought, oh, fuck, did they set this dude up? Is she a plant? Or, you know, I don't know. There's just something I, I, I'm going to, you know, I've never read the novel and I obviously should. I can't believe it, you know, as many times as I've seen this movie and how I love this movie. I've not, I've yet to read the book. Maybe the answers to all my questions would be in that book. Who, who would have ever thought of that? But, mm -hmm. right, like there is that kind of thing. You're. Oh, you're, Yeah. Why can't right? I just talk to you, right? I'm like, there's definitely a familiarity. They definitely know each other. 
more yeah, like than it, just a casual right? meeting. Yeah. Like, and he's a dirty fucking, you know, he's a dirty Cincinnati cop. So who knows, man, you know, you know, they probably, uh, you know, there was probably some coercion at some point. <laughs> who knows? There just definitely feels like there's that, or is she just p- t- turning on her womanly charms and, but to me, it's more than that. It's like, no, and there's something. Yeah. There's definitely there. something more yeah. there because you go, know, why can't I just talk to you? Like, right. and, and then his response wasn't like, no, maybe the usual yeah. response that you would get that where the guy kind of tips his hat back, like thinking, cause he's starting to sweat now that, that thing you right. see in movies like this, but again, a, more than just a familiarity with each other, they know each other. Yeah. And that's obvious. Like, just, just, you know, they're going to, they'll go easy on you. Just because his delivery is so low key. That's not somebody that just met. They did, no. There aren't two people that just met. I don't think so either. No, but yeah, I was with you. You got my going, is she, is she just putting it on? You know, is she really as flighty as they're trying to make her like she, or, or just aloof, I should say, not flighty. Right. Solid movie. It's, it's solid. The performance is all around too. And there's, I never feel that Houston is, pulling a fast one, I always feel like I'm, I'm waiting for something else to happen. Now, I don't know if that is, you know, our 35 plus years of really paying attention to movies that we're, and we're so used to that certain thing where we're waiting for that one more, that waiting for the other shoe to drop. And we get that with some of these movies, but this one is, isn't that this one is just straight ahead. Right. Yeah. I, I don't feel like there's anything that is hidden. There's no messages that are hidden. We're not seeing something that we didn't expect to happen or or we're not surprised when it happened anyway. Well, that's the thing, right? We know that this caper is going to go bad. We know. Right. It's set up that way, but we're never not willing to stay on the journey with these guys because we right. don't know exactly what's going to go wrong or where it's going to go wrong. We just know that it's going to go wrong. Right. Based on, you know, their track records, I guess. Like, right? Like Doc just got out of prison. So as, as good as he is... He's been caught before. His line when he says, I don't carry a gun. I haven't carried a gun since I was in my 20s. Yeah. You, you carry a gun, you shoot a cop. They go hard on you. I mean, yeah. right? Like, yeah. you know, again, just these lines in this movie are, you know, there's a lot of unforgettable moments. But it's like everybody has their moment in this. I feel like each character, each one of the gang, everybody involved, they all have their moment where they get to speak that one bit of nugget of wisdom or bit of truth or what does Caruso say? He says, eh, I don't like hooligans. You know, they're, they're, they're like left-handed pitchers. They're, they all got to screw loose, you know, <laughs> right. to me is like, uh, you know, I don't know how, I mean, maybe that's where the term came from, but I always heard the thing about, yeah, you know, about left-handed relief pitchers. They all, there's always, you know, there's something, they're all oddballs. Maybe it came from this movie or maybe it was before that, but I'd always heard it. And I, you know, until I, heard him say it again yesterday even the second time i watched it i was like oh fuck there's that that is that where that came from you know because you know everybody always says that left-handed people are fucking weird you know the world's built for right-handed people and again the the whole quote of that uh, article i sent you you know it's right there in the top it's right there in the line right that's Mm -hmm. it you know a left-handed form of human endeavor (laughs) Yeah, I mean this this movie is great, and again, yeah. if you if you haven't seen it and you want to watch it, if you want to watch a quintessential noir, you can watch all everything we've picked. I feel like this and Night in the City they're the first two you should start with for noir. Right. I mean, I, I, maybe somebody else smarter than me has a better idea, but for me, I don't, and those that's where I'd start. Right, and the great thing about them both, 
even though they came out in 1950 and both have the cusp of the McCarthy era coming into play and affecting their productions, they're, they're, what's great about them is they're still so different. And mm-hmm. oh, yeah. the story, that not just the story is being told, but just the way that it's put together. I know this is a, uh, you can sit there and say, oh, it's 1950. I mean, there's only so many stories you can tell though. <laughs> and for it to be a movie that came out the same year, you're not falling into that trap of, Hey, look, it's a water movie with a monster in it. Oh, look at that. Here's another movie with a water. Yeah. And it's underwater with a monster. Because movies weren't made like, that, made like that back then. Right. They didn't stop making a movie because, uh, <laughs> because somebody with other, some other studio across town is making a gangster movie. You don't stop making them. Right. Exactly. I mean, what did, what did Melville say? There's precisely 19 possible dramatic variants on the relationship between cops and crooks. Yes. All 19 of them are in this movie. All 19 are in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be sure to put the link to that essay yeah, that you shared with that me. That essay the, is really good. I mean, yeah. it really, it really, you know, if you want to read like smart, the smart person's version of what we've been rambling on for the last 45 <laughs> minutes. That we pilfered lines from. <laughs> yeah, where we've, you know, but again, look, it's there. I mean, we. I, I feel like if I didn't quote this or if I didn't send this to you, then I wouldn't be, you know, I'd just be talking out of my ass because- there's a lot of thought that goes into this and that's what I'm saying. I'm just reacting right. to the movie and how much I dig the movie and why I dig the movie. Right. Again, I'm not a fucking scholar and I don't pretend to be, and I don't want to be, but I do like to read what smart people write about this stuff that I like. So I wanted to kind of close it out with some nonsense because it is nonsense for those of us that are old enough to remember when this happened in the late eighties, uh, Ted Turner had a big boner for, <laughs> For you bone me, Ted. It boned me. Ted was trying to. God. Ted was trying to bone me. <laughs> Did he just bone? All right. Okay. There's there's some choice lines at the very beginning of Asphalt Jungle. Yeah, you had to but, cut one in right at the, the top. Okay, I'll do that thing. <laughs> oh shit! And for a man named Dix, I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's right there. Anyway, so Ted Turner had this thing about one to colorize. Black and white, some classic black and whites, and his the the big one that he went after right at the beginning was "It's a Wonderful Life" was one of the, one of the first ones he died. Oh, yeah. But Asphalt Jungle was another one. Yep, and it got so to a point where it was nasty. John Houston's family at the time his heirs because he had passed away shortly after Pritzi's honor. They sued. They actually took Turner Entertainment Company to court to to get them to say, "Look, you took a, you took this piece of art that was the author's original intent, and then you fucking changed it." So it was a big to do about that. Um, it's a, uh, I mean, film fans across the board were kind of pissed, you know. Anyway, and they're like, "What are you doing? Like, it's been black and white for thirty years. Why you got to do something to it now? <laughs> Leave it alone, right?" It's it was it was one of those things that never made any sense. I've never seen a colorized version of any of these movies and thought, oh yeah, that makes that movie infinitely better. Nope. No, I had a VHS copy of because that was the thing too. I wanted a copy of it's a it's a wonderful life. I never owned it on tape, so I'm like, I'm gonna get it. And and unfortunately, you could at the time you could only get the colored version. It was done, right. so I just, you just turned down the color and. I remember the box art, literally, it showed the movie like half color. Like, I feel like you're looking at it and you're just like, oh my God, if it looks like this, when I'm wa- why would I want to watch this? And the irony now is that you you have that ability. Now with the with the technology, if they wanted to color a black and white movie, it wouldn't look like that bullshit from 40 years ago. No, 
not at all. 35 years ago. It looks a lot. I mean, you could, I mean, look at the, look at how we can change colors now and something that was shot. It's so easily because with a laptop that we can buy off at Costco, you don't even need special tools anymore. No. But you know why you don't see it happen? Because it's fucking stupid. Because <laughs> nobody fucking wants it. That's why you don't see it happen. Nobody wanted you know, it then and nobody wants it now. TNT showed Wizard of Oz more than anybody. I don't think, I mean, it was just one of those things because he owned the property, right? It was a, that, was, that was a Warner Brothers thing, right? Mm-hmm. When the, when Turner and Warner eventually kind of had some kind of uh, merging or purchasing or whatever. I forgot what whatever it was. Whatever that derivative was. I hadn't seen Wizard of Oz in a long time. And I'm like, <laughs> this is my reaction, dude. Because like, you know, pre-Oz. And I'm like, oh, look, at least he was smart enough not to fuck with this movie, right? I'm thinking, <laughs> forgetting that when you get to Oz, it goes color again. I wasn't, I hadn't seen it in a really long time. When you see something, when you were seeing like every other movie on Turner that was black and white, you knew it was black and white and it was colored. I thought it's kind of, it was like, it made you think, what the fuck? And then of course, oh, that's right. It was color. Duh. Yeah. Shot by our man who shot the asphalt jungle. Weirdly. Bringing it all back full circle. But that's what I was doing. Yeah, I know. I got you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Clumsily. (laughs) Clumsily climbing back. Yes, but we got there. We got there. All right. Well, there you go. That is number three for Noir Vember. The next one up is a neo-noir, and I'm excited to get to that. If you want to watch Asphalt Jungle now, it's currently on Max. Max. Mm-hmm. Also, if you have a subscription to, fuck, what was it? Damn it. Hold on. Criterion? No. And if you have a subscription to TCM, Turner Classic Movies. Oh, yeah, it is on Turner Classic Movies. Right. You'll yes. get it there as well. Weirdly, it's not on, I was shocked that it wasn't on the Criterion channel. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was saying before. Like it was, it was on the Criterion. And then when we got to the beginning of the month, then it was gone. But then Night in the City got put on. Right. I mean, uh, Mona Lisa got put on. Because initially Mona Lisa wasn't there. It was only on Max. What I would uh, I highly suggest though, I mean, I, I gave me an excuse to open the Blu-ray, which I'd had sitting outside for a year. If you're a collector and you want physical media, I mean, this is definitely a, is one you should pick up, a title you should pick up and own because you're going to want to watch this again and again. And the the supplementals on it are fantastic. Yep. There's a, there, like I said, that documentary on Sterling Hayden is a trip, man, because it's literally 50, he's 52 years old at the time. So he's 20, he was what, 35 or 36 when they shot, or maybe he was just supposed to be that age. He was born in 1916. So I'd have to do some math. I guess he's, he was 34 when they shot this movie. So it's 18 years later. He sailed around the world at this point and written a book. And it's a trip, man. There's some really good stuff. And there's a whole piece on Rasa, the DP and the lighting. And, it, and then there's some interviews with Houston himself. So there's a lot of really great stuff on this disc. So if you don't have it, uh, you might want to pick this one up. Groovy. And if you're, if you're happy to listen to this before December 4th of 2023, uh, Criterion has still got uh, half off over at Barnes & Noble. So there you go. Yeah, man. Do yourself a favor and pick it up. You won't be sorry. Trust me. If you want to follow the show on socials, it's at Karate Pod on Twitter, Insta, and Letterboxd. You can follow Corey on Letterboxd. It's Corey underscore Culp. And also on Instagram at Culprit97. And if you want to support the show on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash Karate Pod. If you'd like to follow me, you can follow me at Rock and Roll 33 on your Instagram, or you can follow me at Dix Handley at Letterboxd.com. That's Dix Handley, not Ace Handlin, at Letterboxd.com. Mm-hmm.